This podcast episode contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome listeners of The Blood Evidence to episode four. I'm your host, Stacey Metzler. This case involves the murder of a 56-year-old psychologist, Catherine Foggy, at her Upper East Side Manhattan office. The killer turned out to be 39-year-old David Tarloff, a known diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic with a past full of hospitalizations, psychiatric treatments, and arrests. This case brought up important conversations regarding the mental health field. The attack focused national attention on the issue of personal safety of mental health professionals. It also brought up these questions. Should the system also be held responsible for the release of this patient, who was clearly exhibiting abnormal and dangerous behaviors that then went on to commit a terrible crime? How did he fall through the cracks? Should there be any laws in regard to a psychologist's safety when meeting with patients alone? How can it be guaranteed that a severely mentally ill patient who is there to get help won't act in the moment on their irrational impulses? When voices in your head are demanding that you hurt someone, how could a mental health provider possibly know that as they can't read their minds? Here are some sentiments from other psychologists following the murder. My hospital is responding by talking about increasing security on the outpatient psychiatric clinic floor, or should I say getting security, because as of now there are no security guards on that floor, and they passed around the police sketch of the killer, it definitely makes me fearful of my job. I wonder if this could happen to me. It gave me chills, and I was horrified to hear how violently she was murdered. I felt awful, and first was worried it might be someone I knew. It's a horrible tragedy, that poor woman. It makes me more fearful, especially since I am often in lonely offices at night, in places with poorly lit parking lots with no buzzer system. I don't like to think about it too much, but that is a very vulnerable situation to be in. And although these horrible incidents don't happen often, it is a reminder that we can put ourselves in positions that may be unsafe. On February 12th, 2008, a killer not yet known murdered Catherine Foggy and seriously wounded her office mate, Dr. Kent Schimbach, with a meat cleaver. God was telling him to do it. He needed money, lots of money, to get his mother out of that nursing home and they had to move to Hawaii for her safety. He had seen Dr. Schimbach before, 17 years ago in fact, the first time he was ever committed to a psychiatric facility, the first time he was diagnosed a paranoid schizophrenic. But the voices in his head were as real as me talking to you all through this podcast. They wouldn't leave him alone. He had to do what he had to do. The killer, a balding male, walked past the doorman at 8 p.m. rolling a suitcase behind him. This was seen on the building's surveillance video. The suitcase was full of potential weapons of torture. The cleaver, knives, rope, women's clothing, and slippers, tape, and adult diapers. He said he was there to see Dr. Schimbach at his office on East 79th Street in Manhattan. He waited in the office reception area, chatting up a patient, while one of Dr. Foggy's evening sessions was in progress. The other patient in the waiting room was a tall, buxom blonde with an appointment with Dr. Schimbach. He waited, and waited, and waited as the minutes ticked by. After her session was over, when he knew she was alone, he made his move. He pushed his way into her office. 
She sat with him for 19 minutes when he took out a nine inch blade, stabbed her in the chest so deep it sliced open her carotid artery and with so much force that the blade bent. Then he slashed her with the meat cleaver and fractured her skull with a rubber mallet. It was Catherine's screams as she furiously fought her attacker that first alerted her colleague and sweet one see that something was terribly wrong. But she didn't yell immediately, possibly indicating she didn't believe her life was in danger. Dr. Kent Schimbach attempted to help her, but was seriously wounded in the face and neck with the cleaver as he struggled to save his own life. The attacker afterward tried to shove the terrified blonde patient, her identity is concealed for patient privacy, that he had chatted with in the waiting area into a bathroom after fighting Dr. Schimbach. She managed to fight him off with a well-placed kick. He ran away and she went under police protection following the incident. I imagine incredibly traumatized. He had to do it. The voices didn't give him a choice. Or did he have a choice? Catherine had been stabbed a total of 15 times. When I was looking up Catherine Foggy background, the search engine was just full of the nightmare she endured as her life was taken from her. But I did find some background from family accounts, her obituary, and some psychology professional pages. Dr. Catherine Foggy came from a large, tight-knit family of working-class Irish immigrants in Queens, her brother, one of six siblings, Owen Foggy said, in spite of her family's modest means and the death of her father when she was young, she achieved her dream of moving to Manhattan and becoming a therapist. She graduated from Hunter College, then worked as an x-ray technician while going to Yeshiva University at night to get her doctorate in psychology. She earned her doctorate in developmental psychology at the Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva in 1981. Yeshiva professor Irma Hilton supervised Catherine's dissertation on how the example set by parents influences the roles a daughter adopts as a woman. She was pleasant, forthcoming, welcoming, and articulate, Hilton said. Afterwards, Catherine taught at St. Peter's College from 1981 to 1985 and gradually built an independent practice. According to her website, she had also worked as a consultant at Eager Health Center, a residential healthcare facility on Staten Island, developing programs for families, caregivers, staff, and residents. An APA member, she belonged to APA's Division 40, Clinical Neuropsychology, and Division 38's Committee on Women in Health. Catherine's loved ones gathered at St. Monica's Church for her funeral. The church was packed with hundreds of mourners, 350 in fact. She was well-loved and admired. The church was on the same block as the top floor apartment she and her husband shared, the floral stand where she bought flowers every week, and where she visited with her parents. Her poplar casket was carried into the church, followed closely by a procession of family and friends and her grieving husband. She was as vivacious and as smiling and as happy as ever, and as gracious and generous, said the Reverend Finn. He urged mourners to remember the joy, to remember the freshness that she wanted to bring to many of us. The entire psychology profession mourned the loss of a professional taken too soon. 
It brought up feelings of fear and uncertainty, the this could happen to me type thoughts. A close friend of Catherine's remembered her as a kind-hearted, deeply spiritual woman who truly wanted to help clients improve their lives. Her name was Sister Patricia Daly, who delivered Catherine's eulogy. They had worked together at St. Peter's College. She said, She had such a compassion for people. To really see people work through either changes in their lives, or crises in their lives, or just to get a handle on developmental experiences. She was remembered as the therapist who refreshed the broken. Sister Daly ended her eulogy by turning to Catherine's casket, clapping her hands, and saying, well done, while everyone in attendance stood up and joined in the standing ovation. A fitting tribute to someone described as having such inspirational wisdom and a winning smile. Catherine practiced psychology for more than 20 years on the Upper East Side. Besides her career, Catherine loved playing music, painting with watercolors, and visiting Paris. She learned how to play guitar in the past 10 years, and she and her husband attended a summer camp for acoustic guitar enthusiasts every summer. Once a year, the two would vacation in Paris, renting a small apartment and walking and bicycling through the city. Walter found out about his wife's death by just crossing the street from their apartment to her office the night it happened. He was concerned that she hadn't come home when he saw sirens and police cars and just walked over and asked them what was going on. When police first got to the scene, they noticed that the killer had left a couple bags when he fled. They were able to lift a fingerprint, hoping that that and other forensic evidence spattered all over the office would be an easy solve. Detectives reviewed Catherine's paper appointment calendar, checking names on her electronic appointment book and her computer, and running down a list of names provided by her husband, Walter. They also checked the surveillance footage from the blocks surrounding her office for more images of the balding killer. One tape showed him on the block at 6.30 p.m., more than two hours before the murder apparently casing the building. At one point, he entered the building and then left. The original theory was that Catherine was slain by a significant other of one of her patients, most of whom are women. He had left behind two bags and they were filled with all the twisted evidence to commit a heinous crime. There was speculation that her killer had more than murder on his mind and may have intended to sexually torment her as well. Her office was a bloody disaster. More blood was found on the basement door the killer used to escape. The therapist fought for her life and police had hoped that some of the blood in the office belonged to the killer. Detectives began to question a Pennsylvania musician who says he spoke with Catherine on the phone the day she was murdered. William Koonsman had been emailing and calling Catherine regularly to discuss worsening personal problems. He was 42, married with six children who met Catherine at a guitar camp six years earlier. He was questioned for eight hours, but was not charged. He didn't fit the description either. The killer was a round-faced, balding man. Koonsman was thin with curly hair. Also, the blonde woman who escaped did not pick him in a lineup. Police, able to lift the handprint off the bloody bag that he left, ended up being able to match the palm print to a 39-year-old man named David Tarloff. He had been arrested earlier in the month on charges of assault, having punched a security guard in the face after being asked to leave St. John's Episcopal Hospital in Queens. It wasn't clear why he had been at the hospital. He was then arrested again at his apartment in Queens for the involvement in Catherine's murder. The cops picked him up bright and early about 5.40 a.m. 
Tarloff made a lot of incriminating statements during a short 35-minute interrogation when he got to the station around 7.20 a.m., the police commissioner Raymond Kelly said, but the commissioner declined to say if he had confessed. I'm going to narrate a little bit of what he had said, but I'm also going to play the interrogation tape that's available publicly for you. Tarloff said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that woman. I didn't know she was going to be there. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. Please, please remember this. I swear to God on my mother's life. I thought she was going to kill me. I just... I didn't know what to do. I, everything happened so fast. Tarloff also told detectives he's been institutionalized over 20 times and was molested as a child. He claims he wanted the money to take his mother from her nursing home and bring her to Hawaii. He muttered to detectives that she, quote, had been sitting in her own feces for five years. He went on saying, I swear to God, I was just going to tie him up, tape him up, Shut the door and go, Tarloff said. He speaks a lot about what he was going to do about Dr. Schimbach, that Dr. Schimbach was his psychiatrist. So I'm not sure why. I mean, obviously he didn't seem to be in his right mind, or was he? But I don't know why he chose to storm into Catherine's office, unless maybe he thought that that was his office. I'm really not sure. During the interrogation, the accused murderer also asked for cops to bring him a sandwich, changing his mind several times between salami, pastrami, and corned beef. Throughout the interview, he had to be roused multiple times by the officers. He and Catherine had never met. He had said he was frightened that she was going to attack him because her long fingernails alarmed him. Believe me, I wish she was never there, but I thought she was evil. Tarloff told a psychologist later in 2010, I went to kill her. I thought I had no choice. Now I'm going to play for you the interrogation tape. This never happens. Well, I can't imagine that it has. 21 times. Right. Which is over 22. I didn't go there. All I wanted was to get money from him. So I probably, I thought he was rich. So I could go there, get his money. I was going to leave him there. I had this hammer. I was going to hit him. I was up in his bed. I didn't want to. I was going to tie him up and scare him. But I didn't know that he was going to be there. I went to it because I heard a noise and I just wanted to go in and look. She attacked me. Everything happened so fast. I swear to God. I was just going to tie him up, tape him up, shut the door, go. I didn't know anything. I was going to take his card. I even begged him for the number. I wrote it down, but he had a seven-digit number or something, and I know the accounts were four-digit ahead of him. He wouldn't tell me. I tried to leave. I did. I left. I wasn't going to... I didn't want that lady... I thought she was going to kill me. I just... I didn't know what to do. I, everything happened fast, I swear to God. And I left him there. I had it. I was, I was going like this. I was just trying to scare him. Give me the money. Uh, yeah. I, I saw his pictures. So I said, Zoy. I, I never thought about letting and I swear to God. And that he wouldn't tell me anything. So then, I was tired. I didn't want to hurt the guy. Then I knew there was somebody there talking to him. And I heard some noise. So then I said, I was scared. Maybe he should call the police. So I threw everything in. I read. I said, listen, this guy's, he's nobody. He's a man. I said, fine. Please go. And she wouldn't. Let's go in the bathroom. I was got her. She, I, I don't know her name. She was a blonde girl. Brown. So then, Please, I, I was going back for a while and she started kicking me. So then I heard another, eh. 
because of Iran. I didn't want to do I wanted to go to Hawaii with this money. I never was going to touch it. I thought, go to Hawaii, I would rest. My, my mother would get better. I packed stuff for her, diapers and everything, to take her away. I wasn't, I swear to God, I, you could, I'll, I never have a misdemeanor. I had parking tickets as a kid. I lived in that building for 40 years. The worst thing I did was asking people for a few dollars because I was, I was on the drugs, but I never stole. I paid for it. My brain was tired. I found it accidentally. The medication was so hard to get. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that woman. I, I didn't know her. I didn't know she was going to be there. I called to make sure that he was going to be there. I didn't know. I thought it was his own office. I didn't know any. I called Gracie Square. This is his office. I wrote it down. I went there. I, I knocked on the door just to see if anyone was going to be there. I know his last one was 8 o'clock. I said, do you know where the bathroom is? I, I just wanted, I figured, she said, yes, you left, and I left, and then I waited in the bathroom, and I heard everybody leave, I swear to God, I heard everybody leave, because I, I wasn't going to hurt anybody, please, please remember this, I swear to God, my mother's life, you have a mother, I swear to God, and then, that's it, I'm sorry. He had plotted the robbery just six months following his release from a Staten Island psychiatric facility. He was arraigned on February 17, 2008 with an order from the judge to get a psychiatric evaluation. He was arraigned on charges of second-degree murder, second-degree attempted murder, and first-degree assault. During his arraignment in Manhattan Criminal Court, Tarloff seemed agitated and claimed that his legal aid lawyer, Reginald Sharp, was, quote, not an attorney. Acting Supreme Court Justice Ruth Picholtz ordered a psychiatric evaluation. He was to return to court on February 23rd. A healthcare professional at the psychiatric facility who did not wish to be identified had recognized the violent patient from a composite sketch released by the police. I knew that was him. It gave me a shudder through my body. He was one of the bad cases. Very bad, the employee said adding that Tarloff had been treated at the hospital for at least a month. So who was David Tarloff? What happened? David was described by his family as a popular and brainy high school stud, but spiraled into a delusional madman after his first semester in college. During senior year, he was considered a good-looking guy, his brother Robert reported. He always kept himself together, shaved haircut, worked out, all that stuff. His family goes on to describe his rapid mental deterioration and the devastation of the disease. He was a sick man whose behavior grew increasingly disturbing in the years after college. His life was a downward spiral as he stewed on his delusions in a filthy Rego Park apartment. He was in our apartment and he was 22, 23 years old. He was standing buck naked in front of our mother and just throwing eggs against the wall and screaming random things, Robert testified. My mother would call me and say, he just won't get out of the shower. He won't stop flushing the toilet. He won't change his clothes. He had grandiose visions and religious delusions. Medical records show he reported seeing the devil and the quote, eye of God on the kitchen floor, heard the voice of the devil, and at times had the delusion that he was the Messiah. He told physicians he felt like his brain was falling apart. He would call his brother, Robert, 40 or 50 times in a row to describe his holy visions. 
Robert soon stopped taking the calls as David isolated himself more and more from his family with his erratic behavior. He viewed pieces of paper on the street as special messages from God. His relatives begged him to stay in hospitals or adult homes, but he always left them. His father and brother were huge advocates of his insanity defense following the murder and didn't even recognize the once vibrant young man now looking like a homeless person. By early 2008, he was upset that he wasn't allowed to see his mother, 73-year-old Beatrice, in the hospital she was being treated in. He became obsessed that he was to take care of her himself. That's when he decided that he was going to rob Dr. Schimbach, the first doctor who ever had him committed, kidnap her from the hospital, and move to Hawaii. As I was researching this case, I began to wonder why he was fixated on Dr. Schimbach. And then when I saw that he was the first doctor who had him committed, maybe that deeply emotional experience of his diagnosis and all that kind of stuck in his brain and he just harbored either this resentment or some kind of fixation on him because it had been, like I said, 17 years. And so when he had planned to rob him and then he was gonna kidnap his mother and they were going to move to Hawaii to live happily ever after. But even if he had swiped enough money to disappear with his mother, workers at the far Rockaway nursing home said she wanted nothing to do with him. She had an order of protection against her own son who would call repeatedly just to curse her. Tarloff's Queen's neighbors described him as a troubled man with an erratic and sometimes combative personality who would occasionally wander the halls half-clothed, muttering to himself. He attended Syracuse University, but obviously did not graduate and stayed unemployed. He was a single man with no children and very few friends. Neighbors told cops that Tarloff boasted about his cocaine and pot use and routinely hit them up for money. He would often tell them that he had stopped taking his antipsychotic medications. Neighbors in his co-op building in Corona described him as an unstable man who had been institutionalized by the state. He's not all there, said a neighbor, while a second called him a very sick person. As I read these accounts by his neighbors, they obviously knew that something was wrong with him and the fact that they knew that he hadn't been taking his antipsychotic medications. I wonder if, not that they obviously played a part in the murder, but their complicity or maybe the fact that they, I don't know if that's even the right word, but the fact that they never came forward with this information to police earlier or if that even would have mattered. I just wonder if maybe this would have prevented all of this. But even then, the hospitals knew how severely ill he was and they still released him. I think this is just the part of how broken our mental health care system is. Anyway, that was a caveat, so back to the story. So he had intended to rob Schimbach, and his hope was to get his ATM card and to withdraw $50,000. He later told detectives he believed he had God's blessing for his plan. Prosecutors said Mr. Tarloff had planned the robbery, he bought the weapons which he carried in his coat and suitcase, and called ahead to find out Dr. Schimbach's hours. Afterward, he tried to get rid of the bloodstained clothes and other evidence. He was arrested four days later based on fingerprints left at her office. This would indicate that he was of sound mind potentially at the time as the plot was premeditated. Prosecutors arguing that he was lucid at the time of the attack. His defense argued that the often hospitalized, frequently delusional man should not be held criminally accountable for the bloodbath. 
but prosecutors said despite his psychiatric condition, Tarloff, whose doctors had found him to be obsessed with religion, behaved deliberately and knew he was doing wrong. His defense team was comprised of lawyers Brian Konoski and Frederick L. Sosinski. Brian Konoski told jurors, David's reality is nothing like any of you have ever experienced in your life, arguing Mr. Tarloff was too out of touch with reality during the robbery to understand that what he was doing was immoral. Insanity defenses rarely succeed in New York. Of 5,910 murder cases in the last decade statewide, only seven defendants have been found at trial to not be responsible by reason of mental disease or defect, according to the State Division of Criminal Justice Services. Tarloff pleaded not guilty to charges of murder and attempted murder in April of 2008. It would take three trials to finally convict Tarloff. In October 2010, the first trial, he was initially found mentally unfit to stand trial when the judge ordered a last-minute psychiatric evaluation. Then he was declared competent, but his behavior deteriorated during jury selection and he was found incompetent again for a time, according to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. As a result, Justice Edward McLaughlin declared a mistrial before the jury selection was even completed. In March of 2013, during a second trial in the State Supreme Court of Manhattan, Dr. Kent Schenbach spoke of the nightmarish experience that he somehow managed to escape from. He recalled softly, he was cutting away at me with that thing. He said as he fought for his life and tried to satisfy Tarloff's angry demands for money that, quote, nothing he said or did was indicative of psychosis to me. He went on to describe what he experienced that fateful evening. It had been so long since he last saw him in 1991 that he didn't recognize his former patient. The night of the murder, he said he had just started a session with his last patient of the day when he heard a low rumble, thumping, and alarming high-pitched moans coming from Catherine's office. He left his office and knocked on the door, calling out her name. When she didn't answer, he turned the knob and entered the blood-soaked office. The room was in total disarray. To the left, he saw Catherine lying crumbled on the floor. He called to her saying, Catherine, are you all right? Someone behind him had said, she's dead, and shoved him to the floor. He said, there was a man towering over me. He was shouting, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, as he was flailing at him with something metal and sharp. He realized at that point that he might actually die and struggled to his feet. As he wrestled with the attacker, he grabbed the cleaver, slashing his left fingers. The weapon also gashed his right cheek, leaving a ragged scar which he showed to the jury. Tarloff shoved him down to the floor again, picked up a rocking chair, and pressed it down on his body. He got out from under the chair and managed to push the much taller Tarloff against a wall. He was hit again by Tarloff and went down near the floor. Tarloff then took his wallet, removed the $90 in it, and demanded more. Upon spotting a driver's license, he threatened to go home and murder his wife. Though he didn't have an ATM card, Tarloff repeatedly demanded a PIN number, so Dr. Schimbach just made one up. He said, quote, I'm going to the bank on the corner, and if it's not your PIN number, I will come back here and murder you, and then I'm going to murder your wife. Dr. Schimbach did acknowledge during the trial that he may be jumbling the sequence, but it happened so fast and was so bizarre that his memory could be off a bit. At one point, Tarloff told him his name was Michael Brownstein. At another point, after a bout of silence, he even asked Dr. Schimbach for a place to sleep and something to eat. Dr. Schimbach asked him afterwards, haven't you done enough damage? Why don't you just leave? And then he did just that. 
just walked out of the office. During this trial, Tarloff finally admitted to killing Catherine, but sought to avoid the prison time because of his mental state. Over the course of 10 days of deliberations, the jurors sent two notes to Judge Edward McLaughlin explaining that they were deadlocked. The judge forced them to continue deliberations. The New York Post reported that their deliberations were so contentious, their shouts could be heard in the courtroom through the closed deliberations door. Defense lawyers told a tabloid the jury was split 8-3 to three in favor of acquitting Tarloff based on the insanity defense, with just one juror undecided. After the jury sent another note insisting they were still deadlocked, the judge finally relented saying, I'm willing to say we are finished. Defense lawyer Brian Konoski tells the Post, nine to three in our favor certainly demonstrates what we've been saying all along, that David Tarloff is severely mentally ill and is not responsible by reason of insanity. He belongs in a secure mental hospital, not a prison. The New York Post also reported before the judge declared the mistrial that Tarloff had been acting oddly in the courtroom, making grabbing motions, muttering, and blowing kisses. The second evaluation had been ordered after Tarloff refused to leave his jail cell. Brian Konoski told the Post that Tarloff had stripped naked and ran around the ward when he returned to Bellevue Hospital Center that day. Clearly bonkers. On April 16, 2013, another mistrial was declared due to the deadlocked jury. This was a long-running case. The third and final trial began with jury selection on March 3, 2014. A final verdict was reached on March 28th with Catherine's entire immediate family in the courtroom. This Manhattan jury found Tarloff guilty of first-degree murder and other charges including assault and attempted robbery. He's finally guilty. More than six years after the savage attack, the largely female jury returned the verdict after just five hours of deliberations. Her family was overcome by relief and emotion as the forewoman announced, guilty. The ordeal is over, thank God. Our family has been through hell with this, said Owen Foggy, the victim's brother. There are no winners here, and while the verdict went in our favor, we still lost our dear sister Catherine, added another brother, Michael Foggy. Though Tarloff admitted to a battle in his head as he pleaded for mercy, he was still given a life sentence. Catherine was fondly remembered by family, friends, and colleagues. While looking up her obituary, I found a lot of feelings and sentiments that people expressed regarding her character and how she has impacted their lives in a positive way. One said, God gave us Catherine to show that his love really does exist in this crazy world. She will always be part of the UMGF and she will live on forever in our hearts. God bless. Another, Catherine was loved by all who knew her. She will be greatly missed. We met through our love of music and Martin guitars. I will always remember her welcoming smile. My condolences to you, Walter, and all of Catherine's family. And another, Catherine was one of the first people I met through the UMGF. She was one of the warmest and friendliest folks you could ever want to meet. She made you feel comfortable. Of the many postings about her in the UMGF pages, not one negative word. All loving and uplifting thoughts. A great accomplishment and a fitting tribute. She was survived by her heartbroken husband, Walter. They were married for 25 years. She also had the six siblings, like I said, and they were very close. Perhaps the largest issue that comes from rare events like these is what it means for the mental health profession as a whole. There are a lot of ignorant people out there who have no idea what psychological or psychiatric problems are at all, and this will simply fuel their lack of understanding. Mr. Tarloff clearly had psychiatric problems. 
I would never label him as crazy because it's an empty term that says nothing. He had been arrested, hospitalized, and evaluated many times for psychiatric problems and apparently had gone off his medication. The system was blamed to a large degree because of the repeated attempts to have Mr. Tarlov hospitalized, only to have him released soon after. The New York Times is fair in pointing out that a hospital does not necessarily know a patient's history of hospitalization. I'm seeing here that there's just a lot of miscommunication and maybe uh, maybe it's changed since then, but just a lack of not handoff, but record keeping when it comes to patients that there's not talk obviously or know-how about a patient that goes one place and then goes to another and the next place that they go doesn't know about the hospitalization of the last place. And so I can see how things can get really messed up and how people can fall through the cracks, which is just so unfortunate to me because mental health awareness is a serious issue that obviously when considering this case can lead to complete desolation of both the one afflicted and those nearby and in the crosshairs. Even today there is still a stigma around mental illness and those who suffer in silence are afraid to get the help that they need and sometimes it's just too late. One in five adults will experience some kind of mental illness. Maybe not to the extent as David Tarloff but it's much more common than you might think. So if if you're struggling and you feel alone, I promise that you're not and help is out there for you. The next episode, I will be telling the story of Fred Zane, a police chemist and chief of physical evidence who was eventually caught for faking lab results and lying to courtrooms putting hundreds of innocent men behind bars. And if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to follow on Spotify or hit the subscribe button on iTunes so you'll get instant access when new episodes are published. Until next time, lock your doors and stay safe.